Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you this morning. Do you have your Bible with you? Good. Hebrews chapter 9 is where you need to go. Hebrews chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab one from the pew rack there in front of you so you can follow along, study together with us as we look at God's Word today. Last week in Hebrews, we got into a discussion about the actual sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We saw that sacrifice as infinitely superior in every possible way to two very familiar Old Covenant sacrifices. Here, in that text, the author followed a familiar pattern where he said, not that the Old Covenant is bad and the New Covenant is good. Rather, he said, the Old Covenant was good, but the New Covenant is better. That those sacrifices were good and they accomplished something, but the sacrifice of Jesus in the New Covenant is better and accomplishes infinitely more. We talked about how those Old Testament sacrifices were effective at cleansing the outside of a man, making him ceremonially clean, but that those sacrifices could not fix the real problem that every man has. They couldn't cleanse anyone's conscience. They couldn't cleanse anyone's heart. Only the sacrifice of Jesus can do that, right? The sacrifice of Jesus cleanses our conscience, cleanses our hearts. When we got to the application portion last week, I talked to you about this question of what's your problem? What's your problem? And what do, you, what do you see your problem being? Is it some kind of relationship? Is it some kind of financial problem? Is it some kind of upbringing or circumstantial problem? Uh, we need to come to see that our ultimate problem is sin. And it's not just on the outside of us. It's way deep down inside of us. If our ultimate problem is a sinful heart, then the only solution is the, is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And in his death, he takes our sin dies for our sin, takes away our guilt through his death, and in the resurrection he takes our sin away, cleansing our conscience, giving us this ultimate internal cleansing that only Jesus can provide. That's what we talked about last week. This week we'll continue to talk about the sacrifice of Jesus, particularly we will talk today about the blood of Jesus. Now, the blood of Jesus is not a terribly popular subject today, even in churches, even in evangelical churches. There is a trajectory and a tendency uh, to shy away from any talk about the blood of Jesus. We, we don't want to be politically incorrect. We don't want to be insensitive. We don't want to talk about something that's so uh, gory and disgusting, maybe. Let's just not talk about the blood. I want to tell you that that's a dangerous trend. It's a dangerous trajectory. And this text tells us why. If we shy away from any talk about blood, we are shying away, I believe, ultimately from the gospel. This text teaches us without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And so all these churches that are throwing out songs that talk about the blood of Jesus, throwing out vocabulary that would talk about the blood of Jesus, I think are maybe unintentionally or maybe very intentionally throwing out the gospel in the process. And we're not going to do that here at First Baptist Church. We're not going to throw out the gospel because we're ashamed or afraid to talk about the blood of Jesus. In many ways, the blood of Jesus is the heart of the gospel. And so if that means that we are the last church in Harrisburg that sings about the blood of Jesus, we will wear that as a badge of honor around here at First Baptist Church. Amen? This is not something we're going to compromise on, not something we're going to get rid of. We will talk about the blood of Jesus in this church until Jesus returns. That's, that's where it's at. Uh, that is the heart of the gospel. And that's what this text is about today. So if you think that the blood of Jesus is a little gory and all this talk about blood and being washed in the blood, if all that is strange and gory, you have no idea. 
You have no idea how gory it used to be under the Old Covenant. Back in the Old Testament days, we, we just talk about blood in New Testament days. They actually shed blood in Old Testament days. And not just a little bit of blood, a whole lot of blood. In fact, I was reading one scholar named R. Kent Hughes who was talking about a conversation he had at a secular university with one of his professors who referred to Judaism as a, quote, slaughterhouse religion. That, that when we read the Old Covenant, when we read the Old Testament, we see blood everywhere. And that's good obser- observation because there is blood everywhere. In fact, read, read along with me what R. Kent Hughes says about that uh, old system. I think it's on the board. Yeah, he says, but as an outsider, talking about the professor, and that professor was definitely an outsider, he did have a point. Because the Old Testament sacrificial system, which provides the prefigurement for Christ's sacrifice, was a gory affair indeed. During the thousand plus years of the Old Covenant, there were more than a million animal sacrifices. Think about that. Over a thousand years, more than a million animal sacrifices. So considering that each bull's sacrifice spilled a gallon or two of blood and each goat about a quart, the Old Covenant truly rested on a sea of blood. During the Passover, for example, a trough was constructed from the temple down into the Kidron Valley for the disposal of blood, a sacrificial plumbing system. Right, But this last part is maybe the key to the whole thing. He says, why the perpetual sea of blood? Why all of this blood? For one main reason, our Kent Hughes says, to teach that sin demands the shedding of blood. And I think he's right about that. I think when we read the Old Testament, we see this blood flowing out of the temple. We are reminded over and over and over that sin brings death. Sin brings death. Sin brings death. We cannot escape that, and we want to remember that as we look into the text today in Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 15. So read it with me as we study God's word today together. This is what it says. For this reason, he, it's Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant... Those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. For it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law... He took the blood of the calves and the goats and with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Let's pray together. God, teach us that lesson today by your spirit, through your word, that without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And teach us today that blood has been shed. Not bull's blood or goat's blood, but the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ has been shed for forgiveness for cleansing, for remission of sins, for salvation. 
God, open our eyes to see that. For those of us who are trusting in Christ for salvation, who have been forgiven, God, help us to savor this and enjoy it and proclaim it as we leave this place today. And for men and women and boys and girls who are in this room who were lost and dead in their trespasses and sins, we pray that you bring them the gift of salvation today, that you will cleanse them and bring them into your family and give them hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So look at it in verse 15. It says, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Well, what, what reason? This verse 15 is kind of a thematic statement that's going to be the thesis for the entire section that we'll look at today. But for what reason? What is he talking about here? Well, we have to look back at chapter 9, verse 14 to understand what he's talking about when he says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For what reason? Because Jesus has offered himself as a sacrifice. Because Jesus shed his blood so that we may be cleansed. And not just sort of cleansed and not just externally cleansed, but really cleansed. On the inside, our hearts and our conscience cleansed because Jesus gave his life. For that reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Because of his death, because of his blood, because of his resurrection, he is the mediator of a new covenant. That word mediator is pretty significant. It paints this picture of one who stands between two parties, usually who are at odds with each other for some kind of reason, and he brings them together. We see this in our, in our daily life. You know, sometimes we see it in contract negotiations. Sometimes we see it in disagreements that might be legal in some sense. A mediator steps in between two warring parties and brings them together. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Only he doesn't step in between two people who are at odds with each other. He steps in between the holy, pure, and righteous God and sinful, dirty, depraved man, and he brings them together. Only Jesus could do that, right? The, the job of a mediator is not an easy job, is it? I mean, even if you're talking about union contracts and things like that, if you're talking about someone who's a mediator and has to try to bring some agreement between these parties, that's not an easy thing. But imagine being the mediator between holy God and sinful man. Only Jesus can do that. In fact, Scripture says that there's only one mediator. Look at it in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, up on the board. It says, For there is one God and one mediator, also between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. Now, this is interesting because this text teaches us that there's only one mediator, only one mediator that stands between God and man. That's the man Jesus Christ, right? One mediator, but notice also that his role as mediator is based on his death. He isn't a mediator because he has superior negotiating skills. He isn't a mediator because he's an especially good people person or has some deep understanding of the situation. He is the mediator because of his death. Because of his death, he can bring these two parties who are at odds together. So it says in verse 15, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, a new covenant that is different from and better than the old covenant. Look at the end of verse 15. It says, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. This passage is really interesting. 
Because it teaches us that the death of Jesus has a retroactive impact. In other words, Jesus died about 2,000 years ago. And the impact of his death clearly reaches forward from that point in time, right? Because that's how we are impacted. Jesus died 2,000 years ago and we believe in him and the impact of his death reaches forward to us. But this text teaches us that when Jesus died 2,000 years ago, his death, the impact of his death also reached backwards into time and had an impact on those people who were under the old covenant. You see, ultimately, their salvation isn't wrapped up in the blood of bulls and goats. Their salvation, even those guys back then, their salvation ultimately is wrapped up in the blood of Jesus. Laura is, is walking through a catechism at our house with our kids. Um, they're learning a series of questions and answers that teach them about the Bible and about who God is. It's teaching them some scripture explicitly. It's teaching them some systematic theology. And, and it's great. It's so fun to watch them walk through these. But recently, they've dealt with a question that, that is pertinent to this discussion. A question like, how was a guy like David saved or Abraham or Moses or an average Jewish man in the Old Testament? How were they actually saved? So the series of questions goes like this. Uh, Mary Beth, how long ago did Christ die? About 2,000 years. Did you hear that? Isaac, how were sinners saved before Christ came? No, that's the next question. (laughs) That's the next answer to the next question. Question number one, how long ago did Christ die? About 2,000 years ago. Question number two, how were sinners saved before Christ came? By believing in a Messiah to come. How did they show their faith, Isaac? By making sacrifices that God required. That's how they showed their faith in the Messiah to come. What did these sacrifices represent, Sophie? Come on, you're the oldest. Let me ask Asher. This is the coolest part of this whole thing, by the way, is Asher knows a lot of these answers. He doesn't understand any of it. I don't think, but he knows the answers. Like if you ask Asher, uh, why did God create all things, Asher? He will say, for his glory. (laughs) Right? It's a pretty good answer. It's the right answer. So what did these sacrifices represent, Sophie? Represented Christ, the Lamb of God, who would come to die for sinners. And this text is teaching us that when it says, Ah, death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. So Jesus' death has a forward-looking impact that we enjoy today, but Jesus' death also has a backward-looking impact that guys like David and Abraham and the average Jewish man who was believed in a Messiah to come and trusting in that blood, knowing that the blood he was shedding of bulls and goats was only pointing to the blood of the Lamb of God, who is Jesus Christ. Jesus' blood has an impact on him as well. All right? So I want you to see that it's always been, it's always been about the blood of Jesus. Even when it was about the blood of bulls and goats, it was ultimately about the blood of Jesus. Notice also in this verse, to whom the promise of eternal inheritance was given. It says, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Who receives the promise? Those who are called. Raymond Brown explains this in a way that is really helpful. It'll be on the board. When he says, man is a pauper 
before God. That's not a word we use very often. Uh, it means someone who is poor and destitute and needy and cannot provide for himself. Man is a pauper before God, unable to meet the demands of a pure and holy God with his own cheap and useless righteous efforts. It is only when we recognize our need, see ourselves as we really are, and allow him to remove the flimsy curtain of our moral pretense that we can be brought to the place where we receive his help. In his destitution and need, man hears the merciful and generous call of God. It is those who are called who receive the inheritance. Those who have responded to this heavenly call know only too well that God did not call them as a reward for or in response to their special merit, their religious devotion, or their moral achievements. The last sentence is the most important. He says, it is all of grace. Who receives the promise of eternal inheritance? Those who are called. And who are called? Those who receive grace. Not those who are especially righteous, those who are especially religious, but those who have simply been the recipients of God's grace. It is all God's grace. And I love the picture of man in all of his destitution hearing the call of God to salvation. You remember when that happened for you? Remember when that happened for you? Maybe it, maybe it happened kind of suddenly when the Holy Spirit convicted you of your sin. And you began to see quickly your dirtiness and your wretchedness. You began to maybe feel this heavy weight of burden upon yourself because you saw yourself rightly for who you were. That you're a sinful man in the sight of a holy God and that you deserve only his wrath and only his judgment. Do you remember feeling that weight, that desperation? And then maybe even in that same moment, maybe it happened for you like that. Maybe you walked around in that condition for years and years. But maybe in that same moment, you heard the voice of the Lord call your name. Call your name and call you to himself for salvation, for forgiveness, for cleansing, for eternal life. You heard his name. Wasn't that a beautiful day? The day you heard him call your name and you responded and you followed him. It was a beautiful day in my life. I think it was a beautiful day in your life if you've experienced it. And maybe today is that day for you. Maybe today is the day you feel the weight of your sin. You see yourself rightly for who you are. And you hear the Lord call your name. And you turn and you look. And you see that Jesus died in your place. He shed his blood for you. So that you could be cleansed and forgiven. And you hear him call your, your name. You follow him. Trust in him. Obey him. Repent of your sins and be saved. So notice it says that Jesus, Jesus' blood has a forward-reaching impact and a backward-reaching impact. And the promise of eternal inheritance is given to those who have been called. Look at verse 16. It says, For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. All right, am I coming through here at all now? Yeah, a little bit? Okay. Something really interesting happens in verse 16. The author of Hebrews is going to play on a double meaning of the word for covenant. In fact, in some of your English translations, it looks like a whole different word. He's, in some of your English translations, they stop using the word covenant. New American Standard keeps it. Um, but some of your translations insert the word will. Uh, like last will and testament. And what's going on is that the word for covenant can mean two different things. On the one hand, like the author has been using it up to this point in Hebrews, it has uh, the sense of an agreement of the terms of a relationship. 
Uh, it's a serious word. It's a heavy word. It's a relational word. It's, it's a word that has to do with this agreement about the terms of relationship between God and man. And when covenants like that were made, they were sealed with blood. Animals died when serious covenants were made. In fact, you can read about it in uh, Genesis chapter 15. When God makes a covenant with Abram, there are a lot of animals that die that day. In fact, there are a series of animals that go from large animals all the way down to small animals, just a dove or a pigeon. And uh, Abraham is called to cut those animals in half and lay them beside each other, lay the halves beside each other. And, uh, and he's supposed to keep the, the birds from picking at them all night. And sometime during the night, the Lord, in a smoking pot, uh, walked through the middle of those sacrifices. And he made an agreement, essentially a serious agreement with Abraham that says, if I break this covenant I'm making with you, I'll end up like these animals. That was the picture. And they called it cutting a covenant. They would never have used the language of, I'm going to make a covenant with you. They would have used the language of, I will cut a covenant with you. And the cutting happened not to the people, but to animals that died in the process of making covenant. So that's one way the word covenant is used in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And that's the way the author of Hebrews has been using it up to this point. But there's another way that word is often used in normal life outside the Bible during this day. And that was to describe the will. A last will and testament, we would call it today, which is the outline of how to disperse one's possessions upon his death. Now, John Piper, when he preaches this text, he spends his entire time talking about the will, the last will and testament. And he says something pretty profound right at the beginning that I want to share with you. He says, if you don't have a will, you need one. This is practical. This is not so much uh, exegesis of the text. This is just practical advice to you. If you don't have a will... You need one. Piper goes on and he says, otherwise Uncle Sam is going to get money that the church should get. <laughs> and then he adds, or your children. That's, that's, a, that's a good pastor right there. You need a will, otherwise Uncle Sam will get money that the church should get. Or your children. So, talk about a coincidence. We have a guy coming from Springfield on Wednesday, February the 15th at lunchtime. His name is Doug Morrow. He's the director of the Baptist Foundation of Illinois. The Baptist Foundation of Illinois is Illinois Baptist investment firm, essentially. Uh, it's, it's a place where churches can borrow money. It's a place where people can invest their money. Uh, it's the investment arm of Illinois Baptist. And he's coming to talk to our senior adult ministry, which has recently been renamed SALT, SALT Ministry. He's coming to talk to them about the importance of state planning. In other words, he's coming to talk to our senior adults about the importance of having a will. And so I want to say that if you're not a senior adult and you want to come and listen to Doug Morrow talk, the invitation is open. I didn't clear this with the senior adult leadership, um, but I'm doing it anyway. Sorry. Um, <laughs> there's going to be a great resource. If like what we're talking about today, you say, I don't have, I don't have a will. I haven't given any directives about what to do with my stuff when I die. I need one. John Piper's right. I need a will. Come next uh, a couple weeks on a Wednesday and hear Doug Morrow talk and, uh, and get some more information about that. But he's talking here about will. I think, I think it's right to see a shift because he has just and he will continue to be talking about the importance of a death, right? Represented by the concept of blood in the text. When he talks about blood, he's not just talking about uh, bleeding. He's talking about uh, bleeding unto death. He, he, blood and death are synonymous in the text. So because he's been talking about death, and because he just mentioned the idea of inheritance, right? 
and inheritance only comes through death, he now switches to the second meaning of the word covenant in the form of will in order to illustrate some important truths. All right, so some of your English translations do that. They make the transition, and maybe that helps us understand that when we're translating a text, there's always a little bit of interpretation involved. So, so if we're just translating the text, that word is covenant. It, it, it is still covenant. The word hasn't changed. In this whole passage, it's the same word every time. But the understanding or the nuance has changed more from covenant in the sense we've been talking about it in Hebrews to the idea of a will that he's going to spend a couple of verses talking about. And the two are closely connected. So these translations that move to will haven't done anything bad, but we do need to understand that that there is some interpretation involved in translation and that context is always the king when it comes to those kind of things. Some of you will like that little tidbit and some of you could care less. We're talking about a will now. That's where we're at. So Piper, like I said, talks a lot about the importance of will in this text and he says something pretty profound at the end of his discussion about the will when he says this. Follow along on the board. He says, finally... He, that is the author of Hebrews, compares the new covenant with a last will and testament because a will is not something the heirs negotiate about. This is, this is so good. A will is not something the heirs negotiate about. It comes unilaterally from the one who wrote it down and the heirs take it or leave it as it is. They cannot change the decisions of the one who wrote the will. The new covenant is drawn up by God without consulting the heirs or anyone else. It is a sovereign expression of God's will and not a negotiated agreement. This is so important that we understand it. God has not gotten, gotten all of us together as heirs and said, how do you want this to work, guys? That's not the way it worked when, when we wrote our will. We didn't sit down with five little kids who don't know anything about anything and say, how should this work, guys? Who do you want to go live with if we both die? We didn't consult them, right? We wrote it down. And when the day comes, because it will come, they will take it or leave it just as we wrote it. There won't be negotiation about it. And it works the same way with this will. God is the one who has authored it. But what is interesting is it is Jesus Christ who will execute the will. Pretty interesting stuff. So it's a will-like covenant. And wills are only brought into force by death. Right? The inheritance is guaranteed until the death by a promise. And Jesus is interestingly enough the executor of his own will because of the resurrection. So there's coming a day when Laura and I will die and whatever we have will be given to our children and other people that we love and church and ministries. Our stuff will be spread out, right? But someone else is going to have to handle all that. Someone else is going to have to oversee the execution of our will because we won't be around for that part. And that's the way it always works, unless you're Jesus, right? Jesus writes his will, he dies his death, and then he is raised to life to execute the demands of the will that he wrote. Only Jesus is able to execute, to be the executor of his own will. That's pretty cool stuff, right? So Piper summarizes it like this. God not only wrote the will, 
And he not only put it into force by the death of his own son, and he not only raised his son to be the executor of that will, and he not only spread the inheritance of eternal life backward for thousands of years and forward for thousands of years, but he is also today. He is also today calling people out of darkness and death and unbelief to become fellow heirs with his son. In other words, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. So the author is transitioning here from a talk about covenant that is about the terms of relationship to a talk about the last will and testament and the distribution of possessions after death. And it's that after death part that is most significant to the author of Hebrews. In fact, see that in verse 17. In verse 17 it says, For a covenant or a will is valid only when men are dead. For it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. Now some of you in this room are the heirs of great fortunes. Valuable properties. Sentimental trinkets maybe. And you know that you're the heir of those things. But... Those things are not yours until the owner of them dies. They are as good as yours, but they are not yours yet. Now, there are others of you who are the heirs of great fortunes, and you don't know it yet. One of these days, you're going to get a letter in the mail from a law office, and you're going to say, what in the world is this? That happens at the church sometimes. We'll get a letter from some office that says, so-and-so recently passed away and they left First Baptist Church X number of dollars or X piece of property. And we say, why didn't we know about this? Why didn't we know this was coming? So some of us are heirs to fortunes that we don't know about yet and we will not find until the person dies. The point of this verse is that nothing happens. Nothing happens with wills until the person dies. Nothing takes place until there is a death. John MacArthur says, The benefits and provisions of a will are only promises until the one who wrote them dies. Death activates the promises into realities. And that's exactly what has happened in the death of Jesus. These promises have been activated to realities, just like a will, because Jesus died. So the author explains in this verse, verse 18, that this is not just a new covenant concept. Even the old covenant was inaugurated with blood. There was death even at the beginning of the old covenant. That's what he describes in verse 19 through 21. Read it with me. He says, For When every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats and water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and the vessels of the ministry with the blood. You can read all about that scene in Exodus chapter 24, the first part of Exodus chapter 24, and the beginning of the Mosaic covenant and the blood that was sprinkled all over the place at that time. There are some details in this passage that are not in the original, the original scene in Exodus chapter 24. And that's okay, 
Don't, don't get too upset about that because those things have probably been added in the constant remembrance and celebration that would take place in the years after that day happens. Specifically when he talks about sprinkling the book with blood. There's nothing in Exodus about sprinkling the book with blood, although the author of Hebrews makes that point. I think the author of Hebrews is trying to make a larger point to say everything got cleansed with blood. It was a bloody deal. If anything was going to get clean, it had to have blood on it in order to get clean. In fact, I think he makes that clear in the next verse, verse 22, when he says, And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. N.T. Wright says, whenever any pardoning needed doing, there had to be some blood involved. Look at Leviticus 17.11 on the board. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood, it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So even in the old system, with all of those thousands of bulls and thousands of goats, millions of sacrifices, even in the old system with the blood that ran red from the temple to the Kidron Valley, it was teaching us that sin brings death. Sin brings death. And if there's any hope for cleansing, if there's any hope for forgiveness, it comes with blood. It comes through blood. God has set that system up in order to bring about the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So sin brings death. We've all sinned. We deserve to die. Jesus stepped in as our substitute. And by the way, he's a better substitute than a bull or a goat, wouldn't you say? Which would you rather have stand in your place, a goat or Jesus? That's an easy answer, right? He died in our place, he rose again, and we can live through him. Notice at the end of this passage in verse 22, he says, Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. No blood, no death, no forgiveness. And what do we need more than anything in this world? Forgiveness forgiveness. And that forgiveness will be the theme of the next section as we move on in our talk about the sacrifice of Christ. We are thankful today for the blood of Jesus, for the blood of Jesus that was given for us so that we could be forgiven. Charles Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon sums it up this way. This will be on the board. He says, there is no truth more plain than this in the whole of the Old Testament, and it must have within it a very weighty lesson to our souls. There are some who cannot endure the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That's what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus dying in our place. That's called substitutionary atonement. Let them beware lest they be casting away the very soul and essence of the gospel. It is evident that the sacrifice of Christ was intended to give ease to the conscience. For we read that the blood of bulls and of goats could not do that. I fail to see how any doctrine of atonement, except the doctrine of vicarious sacrifice of Christ, can give ease to the guilty conscience. Christ in my stead, suffering the penalty of my sin, that pacifies my conscience, but nothing else does. I want to be able to say that with him. I want to be able to say that like him, right? Christ in my stead, Christ in my place, that alone can satisfy my conscience and nothing else will do, only Jesus. So by way of application, I want, I want to tell you a couple of stories today. Uh, one is, is, did you know that McDonald's is, is selling coffee for $1? A 
like any size coffee. One dollar. Consequently, I have been drinking a lot of coffee. And the other day, I, I went to get some coffee, large coffee, of course. You're not going to order small coffee for $1 when you get large coffee for $1, right? Uh, so I, I was going to get some coffee one morning, and I went through the drive-thru, and it was busy. Even though they've put in two lanes, it was still, I was going to have to wait too long. So I, I did what I'd never do, and I pulled around, and I went inside to get coffee. And uh, the lady at the desk said this to me. She said, what do you need? <laughs> I need coffee. That's what I told her. I need a large coffee for $1, right? Yep, $1. Um, but I got to thinking about that. That's a pretty good question, right? What do you need? The question last week was, what's wrong with you? The question this week is, what do you need? Well, I need a lot of things. That day I needed coffee. Uh, on some sense, I need water, air, food, shelter, clothes. There are a lot of things I need, but when I boil it all down, what I really need and what you really need is forgiveness, forgiveness of sins, remission of sins. That's what we really need, and we've got to learn to see it that way, that what we need most in this life is forgiveness. What we need most in this life is remission of sins. What we need most in this life is cleansing of this dirty heart. So I want us to be thinking this week, about asking our neighbor this question. The people that live maybe even in our homes, maybe that live in our neighborhood, maybe that we work with, I want us to be asking them the question that lady behind the counter at McDonald's asked me. What do you need? What do you need? And in asking them that question, we want to really listen to them, right? If I'm going to go to my unchurched, lost neighbor and say, what do you need? I want to really listen to their answer to that question, right? Because it's going to be pretty insightful about how they view the world and how they view themselves. Maybe they say, I, just, I need, a, I need a, a better relationship or I need more financial security or I need, I need to get rid of this cold that I've got. Uh, when, when, when I listen to them and their answer to this question, it's going to tell me a lot about them. But when I ask them that question, I don't want to just listen to them. I want to be guiding that conversation to help them see that they ultimately need forgiveness of sins. That, yeah, maybe, maybe they do need a roof over their head. And maybe they do need some food in their belly. And I want to hear those things. But I want to be pointing them to the ultimate answer to that question, which is they need forgiveness of sins. So let's ask our neighbors that question. Let's listen to how they answer it. And then let's be leading them to see their real, true, ultimate need in forgiveness of sins that is available in Jesus Christ. So that's question number one today. What do you need? Question number two is, how can I help you? This, is, this has a fast food theme. So maybe one of the things you learn about me is that I eat a lot of fast food. Um, in fact, I love to go to, to Taco Bell in particular. Taco Bell it gets me every time because they never say, what do you need? Or how can I help you? If you go through the drive-thru at Taco Bell, what do they say? How are you today? And then I'm always taken aback. And I'm like, are we going to have a conversation? <laughs> I'm hungry. How am I? I'm hungry. That's why I'm here. But I always, <laughs> it's weird, right? I kind of like it because I'm always like, I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> How about those cubs, right? <laughs> it's the only place that does that, and I think it's fantastic. And that has nothing to do with the lesson today. <laughs> Most of the time, when you go to those places, they will say, How can I help you? How can I help you? Laura had a, an episode this week with uh, customer service uh, of some sort. 
and got to the point where it was very clear they can't help her, right? And she said to this woman, I think it was a woman, right, uh, on the phone, you can't help me, get someone else who can. I want to talk to someone who can help me because you can't help me, right? But I want to, as much as I want us to be asking our neighbors and our friends, what do you need? We want to be asking them also, how can I help you? But we need to understand that ultimately, I can't help them. I need to understand as I ask my friends, how can I help you, that I ultimately cannot help them, that the blood of animals cannot help them, that only Jesus can help them. Right? As much, so, I, so I want to say, what do you need? And I want to listen to them. And I want to be driving the conversation to the ultimate need of the gospel. Right? And when I say, how can I help you? I want to really listen. And if they say, you could help me by giving me a ride to work today. I don't want to just say, I uh, can't do that, but Jesus can save you from your sins. Right? I want to listen to them, answer the question, how can I help you? And as much as I can, I want to help them. Right? And we should want to help them. That's part of what we are, is salt and light on the earth. How can I help you? I want to help you. But at the end of the day, we've got to see that we can't ultimately help folks. Only Jesus can ultimately help folks. So as we're helping them with the things that we can, we want to be steering them to Jesus who can ultimately help them. Do you understand this? We don't just say, I'm not going to help you fill your belly. No, I can help you do that. But that's not your ultimate need. Let me tell you about Jesus over the dinner that I'm buying for you or fixing for you. Make sense? So what do you need? And how can I help? What do you need? You need forgiveness of sins ultimately. How can I help? I can tell you about my friend Jesus, who's God in the flesh and died on the cross for sinners like me and like you. And he didn't just die, he rose again. He beat sin and death and hell. And he offers you forgiveness and cleansing that you ultimately need. And he offers it to you as a gift, a free gift that we receive, not by working or struggling or doing, but by trusting in him, only trusting in him. So we say to our friends, repent of your sins, turn toward Jesus Christ, trust in him, and be saved. Let's stand together and pray. God, we ask that you will help us to see our true need, our deepest need. And help us to see today that only Christ can help. Only Christ can heal. Only Christ can save only Christ can forgive. For those of us who know that salvation and that forgiveness and that cleansing, God, help us to delight in it and savor it in this moment, to be thankful and grateful for it every moment, and to declare it to the world around us. God, we pray that as we go out this week, you'll help us to be engaging our neighbors with these questions. What do you need? And how can I help? But God, I pray that you'll give us an urgency and a burden not to dwell on superficial things with our neighbors and friends, but to drive to the deeper issues of the heart and the cross and the empty tomb. God, we pray that you will give us a deep appreciation and understanding of the gospel, that you have saved us by your grace. We pray that you give us a burden and a brokenness for the lost world around us, that we will see 
people hopeless apart from Christ. And we'll be moved to compassion. And we pray that you give us confidence in the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Give us a sense of confidence that when the gospel is shared, people get saved by your grace and for your glory. So help us to go with appreciation and understanding and confidence as we share this news with the world around us. And we pray even in this moment, in this room, that you'll be doing what only you can do in raising the dead, showing men and women and boys and girls their sin, showing them the beauty of the cross that Christ died in their place, and giving them faith to believe and repentance to turn, giving them the gift of eternal redemption in Christ alone and for your glory alone. And we pray that you'll do this in Jesus' name, amen.